Today's episode of No-Till Flowers is brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy-to-assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. They're quick to build and move, come in a variety of styles and sizes, and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed. Plus, if you order two or more tunnels of any size, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also, be sure to check out Farmer's Friends' growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Today's show is also brought to you by Growing for Market Magazine. Want to know the top 10 most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers? Or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market Magazine. Founded by the flower farmer author, Lynn Bozinski, Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed with articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikane, and Jean-Martin Fortier. By farmers, for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmer's markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website, and podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I want to throw in just a personal off-script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower-related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me here personally. All right. Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no-till or biostimulants or whatever, as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of no-till here on my farm, and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. Today, I'm catching up with an old flower friend of mine, Erin McMullen of Raindrop Farms in Oregon. Erin and her husband, also Erin, so Mr. Erin, have been growing their flower farm from a small plot in their backyard originally to now what is a large eight acre plus operation that sells through many different sales channels, including Mayesh, one of the largest national wholesalers here in the US. Erin talks about how they've restored the soils of worn out Christmas tree farms to be highly productive flower fields through the use of cover cropping. We also talk candidly about being a female farmer and being brave on a daily basis to value our, our flowers and our time appropriately. And we discuss managing employees and how to make them feel valued too. 
By times you'll hear Aaron's young kids in the background of this recording, and I love that. I realize that it might distort the quality of the recording a bit, but ultimately it's a true reflection of what it is like to be a farmer and a mother at the same time, and I am grateful that Aaron juggled both of those hats to also make time for this chat with me. So let's go. Aaron McMillan with me from Raindrop Farms out in Oregon. I'm really excited for this conversation because, um, full disclosure, I already know Aaron fairly well. <laughs> we are both board members for the ASCFG. Um, so I just already was pretty familiar with Aaron's uh, operation, and I think there's so much information that she's going to unload on you all today. And so let's just get started. So welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having me, Jenny. You are welcome. Thank you for being willing to share all that you know, because you've been in this game for a long time, have <laughs> grown your farm up exponentially, and are also um, juggling lots of kids in the process, too. So you've got a lot of um, a lot of really applicable uh, knowledge and experience to share. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit more about your farm, Raindrop Farms, and where you're located, what zone you're in, the size of it, all those kind of sort of basic deets. Sure, yeah. So we are um, in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. So we're about um, an hour, hour and 15 minutes from the Pacific Ocean. And we're about an hour from the um, Cascade Mountain Range, which is kind of puts us in this beautiful valley. We're uh, officially an 8B zone, which mm. is uh, somewhat deceptive because 8B is also, there's a swath of Texas that's 8B and like Louisiana and that southern region uh, where they get real hot in the summer we yeah. do not we we are 8b more because we're kind of mild throughout um, we do have you know a couple of weeks of really hot in the summer but when I say really hot like an Oregonian version of really hot is like 95 <laughs> degrees so yeah. I know that there's some people rolling their eyes at my really hot um, but you know it also we don't we seldom get snow of any of any substance okay. uh, and when we do it's really heavy wet snow because of course we have a lot of rain uh, mm. so those are kind of our our environmental elements we grow on right now we are on about 14 acres with about this last season 2020 we had about eight acres in production wow. so uh, we're we'll expand a little bit more this year um, with some fields that we had cover crops and we had you know uh, prepping last year and in the last couple of seasons so nice. yeah that's, and, uh, and are you, uh, what's your percentage like perennials versus annuals in that you know eight acres is a lot of flowers yeah. to manage yeah so included in that eight acres, we grow about an acre and a half of ornamental gourds and pumpkins and squash for oh. the fall. So that's a pretty big, you know, it's it's a big swath of area um, because they just take up a lot of area. And then yeah. for the rest of it, I would say that we currently are probably about 40% perennial, 60% annual. Uh, but we're in the process as we're adding new property, a lot of it is going more into perennials or woodies. Um, our Number one biggest crop is dahlias. Hmm. So, I mean, I guess depending, technically we could leave them in the ground here and they could perennialize. Uh, we choose not to. So 
that, but that is probably our biggest single crop by space wow. and volume. So you, you you decided basically the most labor intensive crop would be your biggest yes. crop? That, yeah, that's yes. smart. <laughs> that's exactly right. Not only is it labor intensive, but when it's labor intensive, it's generally in the most despicable the weather. Time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you, are you just selling the stems of the dahlias or are you also doing tuber sales? Um, we've done tuber sales in the past. Uh, this year, because we are expanding again, we probably won't be offering tuber sales just because we're going to use them all, hopefully. Um, but yeah, the, mostly just for the stems. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so your farm, just to dial back a little bit to get more specific, do you guys own your land or is it a, um, yeah, tell me about your, your format. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we own part of our farm. We own three acres that we that we live on. And then we've been fortunate enough and really the only reason that we've been able to ramp up our production is because we have neighbors that have leased to us and we have really, really good working relationships with those neighbors. And so we've been able to expand. In fact, we have two separate neighbors now who are our land owners who lease property, we lease property from. One we lease four acres and one we lease, technically we lease 15, but we only use about mm, 12 of that. So okay. so that's why there's room to keep expanding as you as you yes. get going. You can add a little bit more and a little bit more. That's awesome, yes. that's phenomenal. And, it's, and it is, oh, we're really fortunate. We're really fortunate. It's an incredibly challenging place for farmers to be. And land access is a huge issue um, here in Oregon. And my understanding is all around the country um, here in Oregon, our property values are pretty um, out of reach for a lot of people mm. who are starting to farm or even ex existing farmers. And so we feel really fortunate to have those relationships. Yeah. And were those farms um, being farmed already or are these landowners that just happen to own land and then are kind of like, well, we've got a rolling pasture there? Yeah. Farm. No, um, actually. So one of the biggest crops in Oregon are Christmas trees. And so all of this property had been in Christmas trees before we got onto it. And so the, it was in a transition. One of the pieces of properties is um, 160 acres. So they had Christmas trees on most of it. And when the Christmas trees, the last rotation of Christmas trees came off, the landowners chose to plant filberts, which are, are also called hazelnuts. Yeah. So the big crop in Oregon right now. Um, and so we were able to snag up just like little kind of, I guess, odd shaped pieces of the property that don't really, aren't contiguous yeah. with where the filberts were getting planted. So we were able to yeah. use those. Um, and then the other property was in Christmas trees, which has which has lent its own challenges because Christmas. Yeah, trees, I want to know more about that. <laughs> yeah, the way that Christmas trees are grown um, is not very land friendly as far no, as the input. Yeah. Um, it's also a very very acidic or you know acidifying crop. Yeah, for the conifer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we get onto the property, um, our pH all out of whack. So we have to do a lot of soil restoration. So we use a lot of, um, we use a lot of inputs. So we, we do use lime for the, the pH, and then we use a lot of cover cropping, um, a lot of compost, so much compost that we add in. Um, because really, when we've gotten onto these pieces of property, the soil has been, for, for lack of a better term, just kind of dead. There's really no microbial activity. There's, I mean, it's so fun at this point to be 
digging in the soil and find worms, we're like, oh my gosh, worms and bugs. You know, it's super exciting, um, but it's taken us years to get to this point and years to kind of build it back to where it's um, productive in a way that makes us happy. Um, And then, you know, as an added bonus to that, we've seen a huge increase in wildlife and the landowners have been pretty excited about that as well. Um, There's just a ton more birds. There are a ton more like um, coyotes and well, rabbits, uh, which right. I don't want to talk about, <laughs> all, the but, little things. Um, yeah. all the little guys <laughs> as well. But um, we actually, we saw elk on the property for the first time this last wow. season, which was amazing, inspiring, and terrifying all at the same time, because they're huge and they can be really destructive. <laughs> um, but so it's been really rewarding to watch the properties um, come back to life that way. So, yeah. Wow. So... How long does it take you to, to once you onboard a piece of land, you say, I've got this new land here, but it's been in Christmas tree production. Generally mm-hmm. about how many seasons do you wait until you start planting cash crops on it? Or are yeah, the gourds so, maybe part of that process? I was, I was curious if the gourds are something you put in as a way so, of, you know, yeah, The gourds were actually one of the first things that we put down. Um, it was a lot of trial and error when we first got onto mm. the property. And it was a lot of really disastrous, like three inch tall euphorbias and like, oh God, <laughs> zinnias that were like so yellow and couldn't do anything. So oh. um, we definitely, you know, when we first got on, we didn't really have any understanding. And this is why listeners, this is for you. You should always get a soil test um, yeah. because we hadn't, you know, we, our home property was um, forested and the people who had our property before us clear cut it. And so the soil on our property is like this gorgeous, really rich forest floor, humusy soil. And so we were like, you know, we could put anything in it and it would grow beautifully. And so it didn't occur to us that that wouldn't be the case. Our our other farms are only a mile away from our house. So it didn't occur to us that that would be an issue. And so we just like headlong planted stuff and um, we didn't reap the rewards that we anticipated. <laughs> no, uh, I can only imagine. So, yeah, so we had a, a really, it, I mean, you know, it wasn't, we weren't really banking anything on it. We were just kind of excited to get in the property, but the first year was a total disaster. Um, so we spent the next two years cover cropping and composting and, you know, soil checking and yeah, trying to adjust the pH and get, just get things to a place. And we did grow some crops, but more forgiving things. Like we grew sunflowers a lot there, mm, which, mm-hmm. you know, um, in our other fields where things are a lot more, a uh, lot more established and the soil is a lot more, um, well, a lot better. We, you know, we grow sunflowers and they're six or seven feet tall. And in that field, they were three or four feet tall, but we were still able to use them. Yeah. And, the, and uh, sunflowers are really good at mining their own minerals out of soil. So that, that does mm-hmm. seem like a great crop to start with when you've got poor, poor ground in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would say that it was probably the third year before we really put in crops that we were happy with the results on. Um, yeah. And then now we're on year five in that, like we're coming into, let's see, coming into year five. Last year was kind of the first year that we really planted a, a large area in those fields and we're really happy with it happy with it okay and what kind of cover crops were you using that you felt could handle that sort of poor soil content but then Mm -hmm. also develop enough photosynthesis and minerals to be able to make them worthwhile to put back into the ground you know like that they would build yeah 
Yeah, yeah. We um, so we use a lot of a lot of legumes, so um, mm. vetch, um, winter peas, um, fava beans, mm. uh, and then the first couple of years we did a lot of rye, uh, just a lot of kind of grasses. Uh, but they're really we don't have a a lot of big equipment, so trying okay. to get those kind of things worked back in was really challenging. Um, one that we so we use buckwheat in the mm-hmm. summers, um, which is great and it grows fast and it's really pretty too. Uh, and it then is, phacelia. and it's so good for pollinators. Oh, what was that one? Um, phacelia. Ooh, so, I don't know that one actually. I'm trying to think of what the common name uh, is of it, and I don't know. Um, it's another one that's great for bees. The bees love it, so it's P H A C E L I A. Okay, um, I'm gonna look it up. And uh, I love that one. It's beautiful. We actually added bonus. We actually use it as a cut as well. <gasps> so um, you know, it's one of those really cool cover crops that does both does both things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we did like some Sudan grass. We've kind of tried a lot of different things, um, radish, uh, mustard. Um, so what we have down right now for our winter is we have favas, winter peas, vetch, and oats. Um, nice. That are growing that right now. Like and then this, yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's beautiful. There's nothing better than like that gorgeous, mm. you know, green pastry looking winter crop yeah. we love it yeah it makes you cover crops always make me feel like the best farmer <laughs> it doesn't matter real. how nice my um, flowers are if my if I've got a lush green cover crop out there I'm always like look at me go look at me yeah <laughs> for me sure go. I totally agree <laughs> uh, so you said you don't have a lot of equipment and yet you have such a large farm so I also want to talk about that but let's stop pause for a second I want to know how you manage your cover crops then in terms of incorporating them or what's what's the process once you've got you're ready to terminate them yeah so with some of them so we're 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 learning as we go right Mm -hmm. um and we're definitely we've made a couple of real dramatic mistakes where we didn't have um the timing right and that was challenging and so we tried to push things too early so we would cut down and then we would till in and then we'd almost, you know, we try to plant almost instantaneously, right which is a, which is a disaster yeah. um, and it's not good for, um, for anybody. But so what we do now is we, we've been trying to plant the cover crop in such a way that we can kind of chunk off pieces as we go so that we're not trying to turn everything in at once and get everything incorporated at once. So instead we're planning our fields so that, you know, a section here will get will get mowed down, will get incorporated in, and then it'll sit for two weeks or so, and then it'll get reincorporated, and then it'll be at a place where we're ready to start thinking about planting. And at that point, we'll move to the next section and do the okay. same thing, so that we're kind of chunking off pieces. Okay. Um, and that allows us to be not as overwhelmed by it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I mean, one of the you know, and it's one of those things that people tell you and you read in a book. And then I, at least for me, I think, oh, no, no, maybe I'll just be the one who it doesn't apply to and it'll be fine. And I'll just plant right into it. And then I learned my lesson. <laughs> so listeners know who aren't familiar with this, you, you do need to let cover crops break down for a while because they'll tie up nitrogen in the soil. Um, yep. And it just kind of like 
it's kind of like eating too much turkey at Thanksgiving. You just kind of, everything grinds to a halt and you have to take a nap. That's the way the soil feels. That's a funny analogy. Yes. I like that. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the way it happens. So if you try to plant right away into that like super sluggish soil, you mm-hmm. know, your transplants are really going to struggle. So it's better to figure out a way to incorporate cover crops and let the soil rest and digest and then come in and plant, you know, a couple weeks afterwards. Otherwise, yeah, you get, you, I mean, it's not that it'll kill, I mean, in my experience, at least, it's not that it will kill your transplants, but everything just kind of doesn't do as well. <laughs> so it pays to be right. patient, at least. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's exactly the experience we had. And this is after, you know, I took soil science classes in college and knew that yeah. and was so like, oh, no, well, maybe it'll be okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and some of those things you just have to learn on your own. Yeah, you do. Um, now, I'm, you do. now I can move forward with that knowledge. Right, exactly, exactly. So that, that that begs the question of how did you guys get into flower farming in the first place? You said you took classes in college. So do you have oh, yeah. a background in farming at all? You and, Aaron, and your husband's name is Aaron, too. For yes. listeners to know it's yes. actually Aaron Mr. and Aaron. <laughs> Mr. Aaron, yeah. yeah. Um, so Mr. Aaron is actually... Um, a trained chef. So Mr. Aaron. Oh, I didn't know that actually. Wow. Oh, I'm jealous. Went to culinary, yeah, went to culinary art school. It's a match made in heaven because I can burn water. Um, So I, (laughs) I'm, I try, um, but it's really nice to have, to have that knowledge in the household. Um, So he went to culinary art school. Uh, I have a degree in botany and environmental science. So I went to school for plant things, but not farming things. Um, and okay. I worked in I worked in nurseries, like plant nurseries, oh, yeah. um, through college. And so I gained a ton of knowledge that way, as far as just you know plants and species and Latin names and uh, just overall, you know, it's definitely geared more towards landscaping. Yeah. But a lot there's a lot of crossover there, and so I yeah. came to farming with a pretty solid base of knowledge of plants and how plants function and how plants you know, live within the world. Um, but when I was in college, I was working, like I said, at nurseries and I started in horticulture and I realized real quick that I didn't want to be working in nurseries for the rest of my life. And so <laughs> I went, I went out looking for what really kind of made me think and question and, you know, that scientific part of it and that was led me to botany. So um, I finished my degree in that and then I wanted something different. So I just happened to um, like I happened to connect with a friend who was working on an organic produce farm over the summer and so I worked on that farm for a couple of seasons and just like fell in love with the process of growing things to produce food and so our farm actually started as a veggie farm and we grew veggies for the first three years before we um, were able to purchase our own property and make the transition to flowers full-time. Oh, wow. Okay. So why did you decide instead of veggies to do flowers then, since Mr. Aaron's a, a chef and no doubt uh-huh. likes fresh produce, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, then why do the flowers? Yeah. So one of the reasons is land access, um, because we, as you know, young starting out farmers who at the time were holding down, I mean, not maybe minimum wage jobs, but we certainly weren't in the like upper echelon of employment as we were going right. through college, um, we just couldn't afford a lot of land. And in order to really thrive in the veggie business here, we needed to have that. Um, there's a lot of really wonderful, really big, good organic veggie farms in our in our area. 
And so um, we just couldn't compete on that level. And when we finally did find property, it wasn't conducive to cropping. It's our property that we own is uh, like on a hillside. Okay. <laughs> and it, like I said, it, it used to be forested. So it's not that like flat rolling farmland that yeah. I guess I had always thought of, but farmers use. Uh, and so when we moved in, we had to figure out something that we could use a small amount of space for and flowers fit the bill. We could grow a lot more flowers in a small amount of space than we could veggies. And there happened to be a niche at the time our outlet was farmer's market. And there happened to be a niche in our farmer's market that was not filled. There just weren't flower producers. So it kind of, you know, fit perfect. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So it was just that it was a good high cash, you know, high value crop that can grow in a small space intensively on land that maybe isn't perfect for, um, you know, cropping in the right. traditional sense. For so, row, yeah. yeah, like row cropping. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and I'm sure you don't regret your decision now to do flowers. It's such a great. No, decision. and I'll tell you, tell you what, when I got onto that land, that does look more like that. That flat land was like, I mean, whoa. <laughs> it's a whole different ball game to be able to plant straight rows on flat ground so yeah um so let's talk real quick before i forget it i have a little note to myself to ask you about farming at such a large scale without much equipment is what you had said mm. earlier so what kind of equipment are you using and how are you managing to not purchase, you know, lots of very expensive equipment? I think it's great to avoid big equipment if you can, because it's, you got to take out a second mortgage for that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we've definitely, I mean, we've made it a determined effort to not, like, part of it just because we didn't have the resources, but we haven't, we've taken our time growing over the years. Um, and part of that was that we didn't want to go into large amounts of debt to fund yeah. something that we didn't know if it would work out for us as far as employment goes up until um, last March Aaron Mr. Aaron had a full-time job off farm um, and then you know he doesn't anymore um, so now he's mm -hmm. with me um, but uh, that that was not by our choice but that's kind of where the direction we were wanting to go anyway right so when we we're just starting out we didn't have any funds to put into really a lot of equipment um, and so we had an eight horsepower Honda tiller that was handed down from my grandparents' friends. So, wow. you know, <laughs> um, it did the job though for many, many years. And we, if we had, you know, as we were establishing new fields up until I think, in fact, I just um, got my, I just paid off my tractor. So five years ago, Ooh. I got a tractor. Um, and it was uh, definitely a huge purchase for us. And um, you know, it felt really daunting at the time, but that's, that's really, that was our only kind of big purchase that we made for the farm up until that point. And it was really, it was exciting and it was necessary as we were expanding into bigger fields. So when I say we don't have a lot of equipment, I just mean, we, that's the only, we only have the one tractor and I think it's a 26 horsepower tractor. So it's not a big, huge tractor. Right. Yeah. Um, and then we have. Uh, our Honda, sadly, our Honda tiller bit the dust, but we have our replacement tiller um, that we use for things like in the hoop houses. Right, uh, right. And then those are kind of our only two pieces of power equipment. Um, wow. These like backpack sprayers for fertilizing. Right, um, yeah. And we, you know, like other, you know, we have like farm trucks that go back and forth, but right. um, everything else 
instead kind of focused on our systems and making sure that we have you know our irrigation is dialed in and we use uh, we do use weed barrier for like a lot of pathways, especially in our perennials, so that we don't have as much labor needed for weeding or gotcha. um, that kind of stuff. So yeah, so oh, let's look real quick about irrigation. Um, do you use overhead irrigation or are you putting drip out over all those acres? Because that would be a lot of work to put drip out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we do both. Um, some things okay. we do on overhead and some things we do on drip. But our, we, I mean, most of it is on drip um, at this okay. point. We have put, we're fortunate enough that our landowners have um, ag pumps in and water rights oh, off, nice. uh, off of the creek that runs through the property. And so we are able to their system which really has only happened in the last two years uh, and before that I mean I think in 20, 2018 yeah 2018 uh, I was very very pregnant and uh, we <laughs> were very very we did not have as much on drip as I would have liked to have had and I mean I can remember running around with like rainbow sprinklers and dragging hoses you know and that was kind of how we had to do it for a couple of years before we got all of our uh, and so we're really grateful that our landowners are allowing us to use their system. Uh, I never thought that we'd be at a place where I could set a timer and just like have things go off. Uh, yeah, yeah. Love. But there's a lot of, I mean, everything that's perennial is on drip. All of our dahlias are on drip. All of our hoop houses are on drip. Okay. Um, the only things that we do overhead are um, some annual, like hardier you know, bigger annuals like amaranth and some of the okay yeah sunflowers are on overhead yeah that sounds like that's that's a good balance between the two where where you can get away with overhead that's probably ideal but drip <laughs> drip ultimately is better in that capacity so. it really is it's the the part that's hard about it is the, the storing in the winter um i yeah i don't have a wonderful system i feel pretty strongly to, that we need to reuse it as long as we possibly can. And so storing yeah. an issue, um, but it's something that we, we make work. Right, yeah. <laughs> Time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible. Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmer's markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specialty cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ASCFG.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention no-till flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. So I wanna also make sure to get into um, 
uh, your sales channels. But maybe right before we do that, though, I, I would like to also discuss tunnels because you've got mm -hmm. a lot of tunnels and I've heard tell that you recently put up a new one. Oh, and I would just is. like to hear some general um, thoughts about growing in a tunnel. I'm assuming because you get so much rain out there that maybe you need the tunnels to protect against lots of water damage. Um, what maybe tell me two things what's the motivation for having tunnels and then um just maybe some fun stories about tunnels <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we um we have seven tunnels up between the two proper three properties now um and right we just pulled the plastic on the biggest tunnel that we've built yesterday um so it's a 30 by that one's a 30 by 96 tunnel we have a couple of field tunnels that are like 20 by 100 and then we have a couple of bigger tunnels up at the house that are um 20 by 72 i think is what they have okay. out at. um so i i'm going to be totally honest i'm still learning tunnels um and it's it's hard it's a big learning curve for me uh it's challenging for me to keep my succession properly timed and to make sure that i'm utilizing that valuable covered space properly. So we do we do use them for fall extensions, so um, which would be more like the rain protection because yeah. even though it is raining in the spring generally, we don't have a whole lot blooming in that time period. Um, but mostly we do use them for season extensions in the spring to get things going okay. earlier. Uh, so we, you know, our, like I said, our winters are fairly mild don't get a whole lot of really deep holes for very long. So we're able to overwinter things in the, the tunnels like that aren't able to overwinter elsewhere. So right now in my tunnels I have an overwintered bed of mums that's a you know that's almost in very happy and starting to bud out and then um, I also overwinter scented geraniums in there and it's you know, okay. they're, they're unheated tunnels. They're just like a like a cold frame basically like a big huge cold frame. Um, but so those kind of things, by having them overwintering there, they just get such a, a big job start on the, on the season. Uh, and yeah. then things like we plant a lot of our early dahlias in the hoops because we can get them about a month earlier than we can with our field crops, oh, which nice. allows us to get that out, those sales panels rolling in the, in the spring. Yeah. But nice. the tunnels are pretty okay. daunting for me. Um, it's something that I'm definitely learning as I go. And yeah, and I'm trying to dial in their crops. That, I mean, I've had huge crop failures within them, and I've definitely, definitely um, been disappointed in some of my, my results. But as I get more experience and as I, you know, read and listen to other people growing in them, um, I'm definitely learning a lot and, and utilizing them better. Yeah, I think growing in tunnels is always so glorified and and seems so you know uh just heavenly uh but in reality i i struggle a lot with tunnels too i have only two here but they they are uh, it's like it's like it's your fault when something goes wrong in them instead of if if like deer or an elk you know eats your yeah. sunflowers down out in the field it's like oh that's a natural failure that's just something I had no control over versus if something fails in the um in the hoop house in the tunnel you're like drats that that is totally on me yeah <laughs> so that's where I find them so daunting it feels really intimidating to be the one that has so much control. It's a lot of management. It 
it is. It's a lot of management, and it's a lot of, like, really intense observation on things, too, because things get going in the hoop and, like, spiral out of control a whole lot faster than they do in the field. And, like, for example, last year, my sweepies in the hoop got aphids, some fierce. And, I mean, I walked in one day and was like, oh, there's three aphids on this plant. Huh, I should really think about that. And I walked away, and I didn't think about it for a week. Oh, no. They weren't weren't blooming. And by the time I went back, I was like, oh, cool, entire crop, gone. Great. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, that's exactly a total user failure on that. Yeah. Um, but, you yeah. know, it happens. It happens. <laughs> yep. You just got to learn from your mistakes. <laughs> learn from it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And then speaking of learning, um, you guys just put up this new tunnel. And it's um, mm-hmm. it was a tunnel that you, you took down from somewhere else and put up uh-huh. again. <laughs> Tell yes. us about that process. Yes. So we, um, we had an opportunity to buy a used tunnel for dirt cheap. Um, fully, you know, it was fully constructed. So we were able to go and look at it and see that it was actually intact and see that we would be able to put it back up on our property. Uh, we talked to our landowner. We got all the, like, approval to put it, put it up. And uh, we <laughs> the, 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 it was a little dramatic. It had to be out of the spot it was in within, like, 24 hours. And so we sent a crew over. They tore it down. They hauled it home. Um, they brought it back, and we got it all kind of laid out in the barn. And then we went to start putting it up. And before I had done this, I actually, I think I might have posted into an ASPSG forum. Saying, hey, <laughs> can anybody tell me your experience with buying a used tunnel and reassembling? And um, I would say that although I didn't want to read them, and so maybe I wasn't really clicking with it, I would say the predominance of the, the comment staff said, don't do it, run away, never again. Yep. Um, yep. And again, I, I thought to myself, oh, well, you know, I'm sure that they had A, B, or C that's different than what I'm doing, and so I can do this, no problem. Um, and we did, and it's, it hasn't been a horrible process. However, we won't probably ever buy a youth promise of cheap 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 you know it's yep. like well it's cheap 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 for a reason because for a reason. if they were easier to put back up everybody would want to buy a used tunnel <laughs> but instead exactly. it's kind of like you're hauling somebody's junk away for all intents and purposes to um to try and make it work yourself so i think i've heard that over and over again about yep. how just be just be warned about you know buying a used tunnel and disassembling it and reassembling it and i I um I don't envy you that experience at all. <laughs> so, all right. One one of the things that I wanted to make sure to get you specifically on the podcast for was that I wanted to talk about sales outlets because Raindrop Farms is one of the larger farms in terms of you know, um, 
you're not like a big boy, but you're also not a little tiny micro farm either. You're at a scale where you've been able to start selling to wholesalers. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be great to pick your brain about this concept of going from just a one acre farm that's um, no doubt selling mostly retail to how do you scale up to be at a place where you can start approaching um, a wholesaler such as Mayesh or somebody else and also just what are the pros and cons of that? And um, even maybe it's just good to start with defining wholesale yeah. <laughs> for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk. Let's talk about all this. <laughs> yeah. So we sell our wholesale situation is a little bit a little bit unique and um, that we we belong to two wholesale markets. So um, one in Seattle and one in Portland. And the one in Seattle is a standalone market. So it's. Uh, a wholesaler in and of itself, but it's owned by a group of farmers, so it's a cooperative. And so, you know, designers come and shop it just like they would any wholesaler. Um, so we bring our product in and it sells. So it's, it's kind of a hybrid between a retail situation and a wholesale situation because we're not selling it necessarily to the wholesaler. We're selling it through this company. It's a little bit convoluted. Um, in Portland, the Portland, the way that the Portland flower market is set up, it's one large building and it's separated into different businesses, different wholesalers. So I think that there okay. are five or six. I'm not 100% how many there are, but there are at least five, I think. Um, and so each one is an individual business within this larger building. And the Oregon Flower Growers Association is one of those. And that's kind of like um, not a farmer's market in the sense that, like, you know, it's it's more you know it's just a it's a group of growers that all use this space so everybody leases a space on the floor okay. and so there are you know 50 or 75 growers I'm not sure how many are in there lots of growers in there and so okay. designers shop it the same way they do the rest of the wholesalers within that building um, but we are directly selling it through there so we don't there's no middleman middle for man. that okay. right gotcha yeah. But then we also sell to wholesalers within that market. So Mayash being one of them, that's an example that we can use. Um, so we sell our product to them, and then they put it on their floor and sell it to the designers. And um, so the things that are different about that, you know, is that in our in our direct to designer setup, we're merchandising, we're setting prices, we're invoicing. We're taking, you know, the, the orders that might be coming in first, like directly to us, and then fulfilling them. When we sell it to a wholesaler like Mayesh, we just sell it. <laughs> so they <laughs> set a price. We set a price. We sell them the product, and then they're responsible for all the merchandising, all the order taking, all of the invoicing, everything on their end that goes past into like the designers they're dealing with. So the this, the biggest difference, right, is that they're the middleman for us. So it takes a lot of work off of my plate because I don't have, you know, I spend a lot of my, a lot of my business hours in the summer taking orders, communicating with customers, um, organizing trucks and orders that need to go to different markets. And so by right. just selling a large volume to one place and then they deal with all of that, it makes my job that much easier. For that right. product um, because of that though we do get a lower price on that product so you know we can't charge the same to a wholesaler because clearly 
likely they have to mark it back up um, to account for the effort and the, the labor that they're putting in that I would otherwise be putting in. So what we are looking for when we go into a relationship on a product with a wholesaler is something that you know, we grow in volume and that we feel like we can take a little bit of a lower price on in order to move it through in volume. Right. So what kind of crops would you be willing to sell to Mayesh then, but you wouldn't be willing to sell to them because of the, you know, the labor input and the cut that you have to take in price? Give us some examples. Yeah, so I think that the easiest example to illustrate that are dahlias um, because yeah. we grow and within the dahlias. So one example would be we grow, I don't know, 75 or so varieties of dahlias and we wow. we just for our own uses, we kind of separate them into different categories. So we have our what we call our designer dahlias, we have what we consider our grocery dahlias, and then we have what we consider like our uh, retail or farmer's market dahlias. So some of them cross over, some of them, you know, like some grocery dahlias look really good in for, mar- for farmer's markets or for direct to retail or grocery, um, but right. some of them don't and some of them work for design but some of them don't um so like an example would be for our designer dahlias you know i have certain dahlias that i just won't put into wholesale because i want to make sure i make more money on them so um peaches and cream is a great example i could sell oh yeah the wholesale market (laughs) would gobble those up if i wanted them to but i also know that i can put them on the floor in my direct designer wholesale and i can yeah. charge them more for them, get more for, you know, for the product that I feel like I need to. And right. that's, that makes sense to me. But there are yeah. other values like, um, you know, things that I have, either I have huge volume on or aren't really necessarily designer values that mm. I can push through wholesale. They might want them where I can push them to grocery. So I have like these options of where I can send stuff depending on what the demand and what my personal, you know, farm-wise um, right. profitability might need to be. Gotcha. So what is the price point difference? Generally, just, you know, I you don't need to like divulge all your prices or anything, but can you give <laughs> us an example of if you sold um, one particular kind of dahlia to Mayesh, versus if you sold that same kind of dahlia to on the designer floor at the wholesale markets versus if you tried to run it through something like grocery or otherwise like yeah. what could what could be the price difference in all your different sales channels because you have you have so many sales channels yeah so. yeah so we um so when we are looking at like the price from our floor so like our direct to designer versus us to wholesale it's about a 30 percent difference um, oh wow! So yeah, so we um, for round numbers, like say that we charge ten dollars or something on the floor, we would sell it maybe to them for like six fifty or seven. It just kind okay. of depends. Some of the crops, some crops vary, and this is where having a really good relationship with your wholesaler is really important um, because you know at least with the way that the wholesalers that we work with um, are really cognizant of the fact that you know it's taking us time. You know we're producing these things, and so having a open conversation with them saying, well, you know, I can sell you veterinary zinnias for a little bit less and I can sell you clean red zinnias because the seed cost is more because the production level of like doubles is not quite as high or, you know, whatever. Right. 
pleasure that I'm putting on it, being able to have those candid conversations. Um, I've not run into any wholesaler who's like, well, no, you're going to get just this, you know, that's it. And if right. I did, I probably would take a long hard look at whether I wanted to continue a relationship with that, that person. Yeah. And are you set, you're setting your price with the wholesaler or do they tell you what they're willing to pay? Um, it's a little bit of both. You know, there are some crops that I just have no concept of as far as what wholesale will, will carry for pricing. And so I ask. Um, uh, I do have, you know, I mean, I think that it is a little bit of a, we're in a little bit of a unique situation and that our wholesale market is kind of all together. So we can go and look and see what other places are charging. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> it's unique and it's really lovely. Um, and that's something that I always, when people ask me about pricing, I always encourage them to talk to their wholesaler and figure out what the wholesalers are charging. Um, and then use that not as a, not so much as a baseline, but like just as a guide to what kind of the pricing looks like in their area. Um, because yeah. it's important, right, that we all are looking at our products and pricing it so that our farms are sustainable. It doesn't do us any good to charge what the wholesalers are charging um, just to be able to sell it if it's not making it so that our farm can continue on in the future. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that it's important that we don't undersell the wholesaler either, though, in that, um, you know, it, you have to, re I personally, this is just my opinion, but I personally think that we need to respect the industry as a whole. And sometimes a flower farmer can absolutely grow zinnias for way less than the price the wholesaler is selling them for. But I don't personally believe that we should sell them for that, you know, cheap, cheap, cheap price because it devalues the overall value of locally grown flowers. And it also devalues the floral industry as a whole and makes customers believe that they can get really cheap flowers when the reality is most customers don't know a tremendous amount of difference between a zinnia and a dahlia. I mean, they might know the difference, but in terms of like the cost of production. So they'll assume that if they can get a 10 stem bunch of zinnias for 250 at the farmer's market, <laughs> that they should be able to get yeah. a bunch of dahlias for 250 at the farmer's market. So we need to just all collectively work together to raise, you know, awareness of the value of flowers. And that starts with playing by the rules. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I totally agree. Um, and that's one of the challenges that we've found um, and one of the, you know, when we started, we started at farmer's markets, and that was like our exclusive market. Um, and I think that a lot of people do. It's a pretty easy entry place. Um, yeah. And it's super rewarding. Like, there's nothing better than being the person who hands a bouquet of flowers to somebody, right? Like, nobody's right. ever right. sad. When, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't say that. People are sad, and I don't want to take that. Uh, but everybody's always happy when they receive flowers. You know, it's hard right. to, right. to not love that, that reaction. Um, but one of the things that we found over the years is that if we really price things out, our our farmers markets are almost some of the lower dollars that we get. Um, mm. When I tell people that, they kind of don't believe me. But um, yeah. you know, our wholesale we actually make more per stem often on wholesale as we do on farmers markets. And I could see that because it's lot so much less work to do the uh -huh. wholesale than it is to run totally. to the market. Yeah, and it's something definitely. we grapple with consistently. Um, you know, we don't live, I wouldn't say we live rurally. You know, we live, the town that we live kind of closest to is a small college town. There's like 55, 60,000 people in it. So it's not huge, but we're not right. like, you know, we're not way out 
far, far away where there's no market at all. Um, right. But our wholesale markets are 90 miles away. That's the closest one. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of, it's a challenge to like want to be in the markets here, in the farmer's markets, when we're not making as much money on the stem. But it also is really important for us. We've made a decision as a business that we want to have a local presence. And so we continue to do the farmer's markets in order to maintain a local presence, uh, which also allows us to, like you were talking about, it allows us to educate our customers on yeah. the of the product that we produce. Um, and that's a lot of face-to-face conversations. And, you know, it's not, we're not setting the world on fire telling everybody, but one customer <laughs> at a time um, makes that connection that, you know, we're actually here in the face of your farm. These are the people who are in the field, dirty and covered in, you know, covered in butter right. making your flowers right. come to the market for you um, is really important. It's invaluable. And that's kind of the baseline of where we can start to change the perception of, of our products. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that because I think that was something I've noticed a lot of newer growers struggling with and, and also veggie farmers when they transition into selling flowers. For whatever reason, everybody has a really hard time sticking to decent pricing when they first start with flowers. And I think it's because it's it's a luxury product. It's hard to convince people that they're valuable and that they should part with a $20 bill for, um, you know, a bunch of flowers. But the reality is that we have to be brave with our words at places like farmers markets and just explain how this comes to be. You know, flowers aren't just picked from the side of the road. You do have to put a lot of work into it, just as much work as growing food, and that there's tremendous value in having flowers in our farmscapes everywhere, you know, how they bring so much more life and diversity and support habitat in a way that food production never can. So, yeah, I think I think ultimately every farmer should be able to have a strong and sincere sales pitch about why people should pay for their flowers, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And the sooner they can do that. It's yeah. Really something that, um, I, I, you said you used the word brave and, um, I've been doing a lot of like reflection over the winter this year. I don't know. 2020 was a little bit rough for me. I'm not sure how everyone else was. Yeah. Um, it led me to do a lot of that. And that word keeps coming up. Brave. That, and mm. I, um, it's not a word that I've ever considered myself or as part of my lexicon of, to describe my situation in life because yeah. it, it feels so other. It feels like other people are brave and they're, you know, brave is a big concept of, I guess, maybe it's just my upbringing, but I always think of like physical danger or, um, yeah. you know, something that's really big that could cause huge detriment um right. and i'm coming to terms not terms but i'm coming to the realization that it, it takes bravery to, to put forth ourselves every single day and yeah. in a true and honest way and as something that we're really passionate about i i agree with that word being used in that context yeah. um because yeah. it does take bravery to like put yourself out there and to value yourself and to value your work, and to expect yeah. others to do the same. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it's, 
I I know bravery sounds like we're a battle cry and like <laughs> going right. to war, like you know, like a battle of the bastards in Game of Thrones kind of scenario. But it's um, it it really, especially and and hopefully no, I won't alienate any listeners here. But I feel more and more every day that being a female farmer is its own form of battle in you know in a daily bravery sense of way in that we have a really hard time as women valuing ourselves anyway <laughs> you know like we have a hard time standing up for ourselves anyway and then you know those of us that are female flower farmers tend to feel really shy about requesting you know customers pay what they should for what we're growing and working so hard for. And so I think in in some ways it is a bit of a gender issue and being able to stand up for the value of it. Um, And it really does. It comes down to daily acts of bravery and, and just standing by knowing that you're worth something like you, you in and of yourself and what you're producing is absolutely worth the money that somebody should pay and also the respect, the respect that somebody should pay you. Um, well, and I think world. that also brings up an interesting point that we, um, that you touched on a little bit in the introduction and something that I um, have grappled with a lot over the years. Like you said, I have, I have kids at home. I yeah. know that there are a lot of other female flower farmers out there who have kids at home. And it took me a lot of years, a lot of years to feel as though I could have this, business and run it as a professional outside of my home duties. Um, Hmm. You know, when I was, when we were establishing our farm, it was, my goal was that by the time my then youngest turned five and went to kindergarten, you know, I had been able to stay home with them, thank goodness, for that first five years. And I made a goal with myself that I would make it so my business was at a point where I could stay home and still do it instead of having to go back to a job outside of the farm. Um, and it took a lot of, it took a lot of soul searching to feel as though my value was there, you know, and, and my ability to step outside of my mom role and have this business. It wasn't just like a hobby business. It was a real business. Um, it took a lot of, it took a lot. I don't know why. I yeah. you know, it's yeah. a little bit, I'm a little bit humbled by like thinking about it now. Um, yeah. But I think it's important for people who are out there to hear that, that, you know, just that you can be all of those things, right? Like, right. You can, it's, it's hard to balance. And I think that you're right. Yeah. Women have a women, we get, we get put in an, uh, uh, a situation where it's this or that, like, right. You can be a good right. mom or exactly. you can be a good person. And right. um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I'm not always excelling at either of those things, but, <laughs> but that's okay. And yeah, and it's possible, and you know, it's um, it's a humbling experience to be a parent. It's also a humbling experience to be a business owner, and so um, walking that line, but like knowing that you're not alone in that, and yeah, um, that it's all, you know, it's it's hard, but it's doable. It is doable. And I think standing together and acknowledging, looking at each other and saying, I see you over there. I see you with a kid on your hip and a backpack sprayer, <laughs> you know, on yeah. your back and trying to do all of these things and demand 
or request or require whatever word you want to use the value be there for your work you know that you mm -hmm. should be able to charge money and not just be a mom who happened to start a little flower garden to sell some flowers on the side like no you have a business you also are a mom and both of those things are incredibly mm -hmm. valuable and important and deserve respect and and acknowledgement so to speak so um yeah i my hat is off to all female farmers no matter what you're raising um that have kids <laughs> i don't have kids but i always look at everybody every woman out there who's trying to grow flowers or vegetables or steers or pigs or whatever it is <laughs> well, to and do it all it's nuts to me i don't know how you do it but it's I, hard I mean, well and one of the things that i did want to like touch on while we were talking yeah. and so maybe i'll just segue really quick because that's a really good way to, to go right there um, yeah. one of the things that i have found that has led me to be able to do these things is to really take a long hard look at where my value where my work value is and what for my business, what it makes sense for my hours to be focused on. And then to have the bravery and have the ability to pass things off to other people. Yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've, we've got, we're in a place where we have employees. And when we first started hiring people, it was impossible for me. It was impossible for me to fathom trying to, to put anything on other people, like to, yeah. to give away any of the aspects of my business that I'd worked so hard to create to other people just felt like I was giving up or cheating or like mm -hmm. not really being the farmer that's out there. And I mean, I, I, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, you know, I love being in the field. So unfortunately for that perspective, I am not in the field nearly as much as I would like to be, but fortunately I have the opportunity to have people who are there doing that for me so that I can sit behind the desk and sell my product. Um, right. And so that was a big eye-opening experience for me, was really sitting down, I mean literally sitting down and writing out all of the things that I do or did do for my business and then like taking a long hard look at that list and thinking, well, do I really need to be the one who's out there seeding sunflowers every two weeks. Yes, I am the one who knows how to do it right now, but I can teach somebody else how to do that. Yeah. You know, or whatever it is. Um, one of the big ones for us, too, is seed starting. Uh, I am an avid seed starter. It's one of the things <laughs> that I've always been really passionate about. And when we got to a place where our production was at a level where we either had to build a big, huge propagation house or figure out a way to outsource, it made sense to outsource. And yeah. it was painful, and it still is to this day. Like, I still am like, I want to see it start seeds, and I do. I do start yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah. I, don't do, I don't do the major production of our seeds, of our plugs. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it also allows us a huge amount of time and flexibility with other aspects because we don't have that part that we could easily outsource. Yeah. So I think taking that long, hard look and, you know, speaking to, to mothering and, and women out there, in this in this uh, place, you know that's something else that I look really long and hard at. And I made it a point to like uh, every week I have at least one day on my schedule where I do get to like hang out with my kids and we have a family day. Hmm. And I think it's really important to do that. Um, and then also, you know, because of the way that our farm has always been set up, I've been the one who's trying to manage kids while I'm also working. And so I took the leap last year and hired someone to help me with the kids. And that was a weird 
also. Wow, um, that's amazing. It makes, it makes a huge difference for me. It makes it so that I can like put myself into business mode and then be there instead of being like, oh, you want a peanut butter jelly sandwich? I'll just do this email later. Um, right. And even if I'm literally in the house with them, when it's not somebody else is taking care of them, it really allows me to focus in and do what my job is and where my hours right. are valuable. Right. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought all of that up because it, it goes back to this thing I've been thinking about lately is how, and, and it's not always this case, um, but that women are expected to be the caregivers for everybody in their lives, whether it's children or a partner or um, elderly parents or whatever. And, and so in the same, we carry that mentality into our businesses where we, believe we should take care of everything in our businesses because we're used to being the person who has to take care of everything, you know, in terms of needs, you know, obviously, um, you know, men do lots of things in the world and I'm not diminishing that, but um, we do from a young age carry with us this expectation that we should be there to help solve all the problems um, for other people. And so when you're in your own business, you feel like it would be shameful to not be the person to take care of everything that instead yeah. you might take care of your own needs <laughs> just for once, <laughs> take uh-huh. care of your own needs and say, I can't do all of this. And I really struggled with that too when I first started farming and I still, whew, yeah. I still really to struggle this with day. that. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. yeah, it's just hard to, to, to say, I need help. We're really bad at saying I need help. Um, but oh I think God. it's, it's yeah. really important. And that makes a big difference to how like you of all people can really no doubt speak to that about how you had a small farm and then you wanted to scale up and there's no way you could scale up to eight acres of production and do it all yourself and raise kids. Oh, no. um, yeah. So when, and I love your system, by the way, of sitting down and writing everything out. Um, I did that at one point where I just used a big pad of sticky notes and I put every task I could think of on a sticky note and then I started just shuffling them into piles of things that yeah. I, I wanted to keep doing and things that somebody else should do and then shuffled them again into job categories and it all it all worked out then. But um, how when when did you finally make that leap? When did you say like I, I need employees and I also oh and I want to get bigger, <laughs> you know? Like Yeah. Like, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, we, we started um, kind of dabbling in having employees by using woofers. Um, so are okay. you with woofers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. basically kind of like an on-farm volunteer where in exchange for them working for us for a certain amount of hours, we fed them and lodged them. Um, and we did that for a couple of years and it was fine. We actually were really fortunate. We got great workers. Um, but it wasn't consistent, you know, it was, and it was always on someone else's schedule as to when they could be here. And so, um, we hired one employee part-time when we very first, the very first year we decided to do it. Um, and that's another thing I will proudly admit to outsourcing is all my pay- payroll stuff. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I don't do yes. payroll. I have a lady who yes. does all my payroll. Um, yes. and so after, you know, that first year, it was a great trial for us. It kind of was. Uh, the first time both of us had, I know, both Aaron and myself had worked in managerial positions at other organizations. And so we had that management piece, but it had never been something that was for our own business. And that really was an eye-opening experience with the first person that works for us, just kind of understanding where our role would be and how we needed to take a long, hard look at what we still wanted to do. Um, and then after that, we were able to hire 
you know, two or three people the next year, and then um, just kind of more and more each year. Uh, and so it was really at that point, that turning point was when we started hiring. So that was, I guess, in 2014, 2015, I can't remember right okay. off the top of my head. Um, yeah. And that allowed us to, you know, it allowed us to produce more. It allowed us to, like, really take a long, hard look at it. And it, it also felt like a leaping point where we were, like, a real business at that point. Although, obviously, we were before that. Um, but having other people working on creating this vision of our business really made it feel yeah. real. So how many employees do you have now, then? Not, I mean, maybe um, not right this minute. It's windy. But. <laughs> right now I have three, but uh, okay. yeah. So um, let's see. So 2020 was, of course, again, a bonkers year. And so we yep. ended up hiring as many people as we had anticipated, which meant that we had, I think, seven employees for the year. Um, okay. When we would have liked to have been closer to 10 or so. So that's okay. kind of where we'll be for the summer of 2021. Um, you know, we don't have, that's, that's just the seasonal employees. We don't really have people, we have two employees that stay over through the winter. Um, but this is the first year that we've been able to keep them on full, full over the winter. Oh, um, wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. It's, yeah, it's really exciting. It's, um, yeah. We're really grateful to be able to do that because we really, I um, I can't even express how much we we appreciate the people who work for us. Um, and the two people who are here for the winter with us this year have been with us, though we're going into their fourth season. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. Yeah, so it really feels, it feels amazing to be able to support them through the winter months and the way that they, yeah. you know, they've supported us through the summer. Um, yeah. So we're really grateful for that. So how so it's rare to be able to a farm to be able to keep employees through four four years. So how have you managed to make employees feel valued and what kind of do you have to just pay them a lot or is it more than that? Is there like another well, so you know, we, what are you doing? Yeah, we definitely do pay well above what the minimum wage is here in Oregon. Um and we I mean I think we pay pretty well. I don't, I guess you'd have to ask my employees if they feel like they paid well. Um, but we definitely constantly are looking at that. And um, over the years, we've been able to also um, give more responsibility to our, our employees. Um, and, you know, with that comes pay raises and, you know, we don't, aren't expecting people to do more for the same. But um, I think that that's one thing that, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but often I'll have people come to me who want to be flower farmers themselves, and so they'll come and work on a farm. Um, and so it's, you know, there's always that learning part. Um, I don't know, I guess we really value our employees, and so we do go out of our way to make sure that they know that with um, bonuses. We do crew lunches. Um, we make sure that, you know, we, we know everybody's birthdays and we do like little celebrations. Um, it's, it's really, I guess that we feel like we, we call them our farm family. You know, they know our kids. They, we know their kids. You know, we have not this last year, but we try to get together outside of work um, with like barbecues or whatever, just so that everybody can get together. Um, and then I think that there's also just a camaraderie with, that's built when you are working really hard together with people closely. Um, we also, you know, 
we try really hard to vet our employees so that they will fit well with the group that we have. Um, yeah. I okay. always feel like a positive work. In, I always, I always enjoyed working where I enjoy the people. So yeah, um, that I think is, it goes a long way. Yeah, I think there's you know the the obviously what you earn in hours is very important when you're an employee, but I think there's also that sense of respect and um, just liking showing up to work is a big right. piece of the puzzle totally. as well. So, and, and showing respect through a, a good living wage is, is part of the puzzle, a piece of the puzzle of being a good employer too. So that, that is a way to show respect, but also, you know, birthdays and stuff. Yeah. And I think just like communication, right. Is mm-hmm. I, I really feel pretty passionately that, if you can have open communication, that yeah. things can be out, you know, transparent and really um, understand each other. It really helps with relationships. So uh, yeah. we do, you know, crew, we do meetings in the morning, not every day, but on like big harvest days, we do meetings in the morning. Um, we're always available if people need to discuss something or have something that's come up. We're, we try to be as flexible as we can with schedules um, within reason, you know, but um yeah. Yeah, we're, definitely. We're really everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I first started farming, I was really in this sort of boss mentality where I I was just really busy growing my business and there was so much on my plate and I would just kind of like randomly tell people like, oh, go weed, go weed the zinnias, you know, and I wouldn't, I never really uh, had bigger picture conversations with employees at the beginning mm-hmm. because I, I just was so busy. And I also kind of, for some really dumb reason, I acknowledge my total failure, just thought they didn't need to know the big picture. I was just sort mm-hmm. of like, well, what's the matter? I just need them to weed the zinnias. Why do they need to know about anything else? And then, um, and I just had tons of employee turnover in that capacity. And then it finally dawned on me that it would be so much better if they knew exactly what was going on in the big picture of the farm and that I had more time to communicate with them. So now we have these really detailed team emails that go out every week where I explain all the goals for the week and also the month and the year, and (laughs) you know, what the vision is for everything. That's a really good point. I think that um, you that's you hit it spot on, right? Um, giving that ownership uh, yeah. of like the accomplishments and what the goals are is really um, is really important. Yeah, I definitely yeah. see my crew be more motivated when they know what we're working towards. Right. And I think it's also really helpful. Like I try to list out all the tasks for the entire week, which is really hard. I send my team email on, on mm-hmm. Sunday evenings and I have to spend several hours. It usually takes me about three hours to do the the email because I'm trying to outline every single task that's going to be done for the week yeah. um, in writing. So they all see it because um, they don't all work the same days. And then also the time expectation for each task, which is a little hard to do sometimes, but you know, we, I let them know. Mm-hmm. There's like a oh, that's a good that. idea. Yeah. Cause then it like, then they know, you know, like, Oh, I, instead of, you know, I keep picking on weeding zinnias, but let's just keep going that way. You know, this, I'm weeding this row of zinnias over here. I guess in theory, somebody could spend like two hours weeding a row of zinnias if they were doing a meticulous job and it, that's a good job, I guess, but I really only want to budget 20 minutes for that job, you know, and I need to communicate that to them. So once I started doing that in the email, 
what two things they they got the scope of the work for the entire week and we're like oh crap there's a lot to get done <laughs> so it helps them you know know the pace and understand the pace but what i also found interesting that i got feedback from an employee was that um it helped her really know how to like dress for the day, you know, like to literally like silly things like what should I pack for lunch and what should I wear? I mean, they're not silly things. They're important things when you work on a farm, but it helped her understand like, oh, this is going to be a physically grueling day. I better be prepared to sweat my butt off <laughs> or like, yeah. oh, we're going to just be kind of standing most of the day. Maybe I want to, you know, have something warmer. So it's, it's, it's things like that, like more than just, you know, sort of shouting orders out as a as an employer I think it's really helpful to think about um, being in your employee's shoes and how it would really help to know uh -huh. like the full scope of the job the full scope of the week and, yeah um, you feel yeah and I think that, that definitely goes back to that was something that writing out those lists really helped inform me on um, because you know I did it for myself as far as what I to accomplish in the things that I do, but I also did it for my employees, um, or for not necessarily you know individual employees, but yeah. just like yeah. for like say harvest crew, like what do they need to do, um, and that really helped inform me of what my expectations were, and then where that was realistic and where it was unrealistic, right? Because if you oh, get to a job yeah. and you're looking at a list and you're like, oh, there's no way we're going to do this, like this isn't realistic <laughs> at all. That doesn't feel good either. So. Being as an employer, being able to be realistic about expectations, um, and that's a hard lesson because I've had the exact experience that you're talking about with the with weeding, where I have just said like vaguely, please go weed that, and then I I come back and it's not done, or it's you know, and I I instantly feel frustration, right? I'm like, well, no, you should have been done with that, but I have to step back as an employer and say, wait a second, what was the expectation that you said? And then right. how did you communicate that? And if you didn't if you didn't do a good job as the employer, why should you expect your employees to like read your mind? They don't know that. So Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anytime I feel frustrated with a with a cruise performance, I always have to well, first I feel very frustrated, but then I try to make myself pause and think, <laughs> you know, what did I do wrong? I did something wrong here. Um, and and, yeah. and nine, what can I do better? Point nine times. Yeah, it's yeah. Most of the time, it's I did something wrong. It's only very, very rarely been that somebody just dropped the ball and you know kind of did a really terrible job. So um, yeah, oh, I I love conversations about figuring out how to manage um, manage crew and teams in general because that's that's a huge piece of being a successful and sustainable farm. Um, not just sustainable for you know the environment and not just sustainable for the farmer, but also sustainable for the farm crew, which is, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole kettle of lots of people. The so. foundation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, wow, this has been such a fun conversation, but I've been um, taking up so much of your time and I'm <laughs> incredibly grateful for it. Is there anything else that you feel like as a more seasoned grower now who's grown your farm up to a larger scale and been through so many different experiences. Is there anything that you think would have really helped you to hear earlier on in your farming journey that might be really good to tell people now? Well, I think that I can, I can pinpoint the pivot for me from going from like a backyard kind of not 
a you know hobbyish type farm to where I really understood that I could make a business out of this. Um, yeah. And it centers around the ASBFG. Um, oh, you tell, yes. It, yeah, so, and this is going to, like when I say this out loud, it sounds so silly. Um, but I naively, as a quote-unquote flower farmer, and this is, remember, I'm, I'm like, I'm not a dinosaur yet, but I'm like definitely older. Um, and when I was doing this, there just wasn't any thought in my mind that there were other people doing this. Yeah. Right. Like there wasn't the forum that we had, there weren't the forums that we have now, there weren't the social media that we have now in order to see what's happening around you. Um, and so for me, finding the ASCSG was just such an aha moment of, oh my gosh, like there are other people doing this and I can talk to them and they can tell me things. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that really for me was a turning point when I went to my first conference and I was just so, I absorbed it all, right? Like I just like was so excited to see other people talk on things and even things that I knew, I knew all of the, I knew the subjects, but I still can like peel out little things that are helpful to me. Um, and so I wish that I had known that earlier. I wish that I had mm. been more in tune with the knowledge that's already out there. Um, and I feel like the ASCFG was such a good platform for me to be in because I know, and to this day, I know that when I go to that forum or I go to a conference, I know that the information has not only been experienced, but then it's been vetted in a way that I trust that it's, um, I can trust that it's going to be applicable, it's going to be, you know, correct, um, and it's going to be researched in a way that I can utilize it on my own farm. So I guess that that would be, and I'm not, and this is, you know, I'm, like you said, I'm a board member on the ASDFG, and I'm a member of the ASDFG, and I value the organization greatly for my own, for my own farm and for my own experience. Um, so I by no means am saying that's the only option, but what I'm saying is that as a newer farmer, or even as like a semi-experienced farmer, making those connections with people and really taking the time to research and gain knowledge on your own, um, mm -hmm. and then from other people is so invaluable. Um, yeah. I, I like that you use the word vetted there because that is, in a nutshell, how the ASCG seems to be different than any other format that I've seen at least. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of newer flower farmers out there. There's a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of online courses. There's a lot of ways to tap into information and experience. But what's different about the ASCFG, and, and this is not an, a paid advertisement. <laughs> this is just my own, my own um, thoughts after being a member for over a decade is that the ASCFG is a compilation of flower farmers from all over the world who have considered themselves professional enough to be willing to pay membership fees and then collectively apply all their knowledge to the to the good of the group, so to speak. So instead of it's just one person's voice, it's thousands of experienced farmer voices together right. helping each other um, and people in all sorts of growing zones and all sorts of 
um, situations and, and all of that, which is really helpful to hear those mm -hmm. stories and those experiences from so many different people rather than just one voice. And it even, I was thinking earlier when you were telling us that your, your farm is in zone 8B is it, how different that is. You know, you can say, oh, I, I grow in this zone and this is what works. Um, but until you start talking to other farmers in that zone, you don't necessarily realize how different your zone might be. So it, right. that, that's right. all to say that, you know, you want to get as many, as many people's experiences to lean on um, and not just rely on one person's experience, so to speak. So, um, and that's part of what I love about doing this podcast is I can hear a lot of voices, you know, um, and and help spread those those stories out there. So, yeah, I love that you've mentioned the AAC. Absolutely. It is an incredible organization. Um, and I feel really lucky to have discovered it myself pretty early on. So, um, yeah. Great. Well, this has been really, really fun, Erin. I kind of want to talk to you all day long, but <laughs> I, I realize that might go on forever if I keep going. Um, but I have a what feeling there's more than, yeah, I was like, there's more that I'm sure I want to pick your brain about. So, um, so I might have to have you back around again. I'm really grateful for your time and all of your knowledge and for you being willing to share it so generously. So thank you. And I hope, um, there are no more high tunnels to put up in your near future. <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna fill the ones I've got. <laughs> Good. That that'll be an undertaking in and of itself. So all right. Yeah. Fantastic. Well and thank you for having me, Jenny. It was lovely to talk to you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.